up? This is Matt Dietz, and this is None of My Business. This is the show where I get to sit down with smart, curious, and ambitious leaders and entrepreneurs who are in the middle of their journey. You know, no business owner gets a playbook when they start their business. It's a tough thing to do. So I wanted to sit down and build a library of people who have done it before us. And today on the show, I had an opportunity to sit down and chat with my new friend, President Gordon Jones, who was the president of the College of Western Idaho, and we had an awesome conversation about a number of different things. Gordon brings a rich history of experience and leadership from the private sector and the public sector and the education sector, and he's collected the whole set, I'd like to say. Gordon did get an MBA at Stanford. Uh, he worked in the for a Fortune 500. I think he worked for, he, well, I know he worked for Gillette for a long time, a big Fortune 500 company, and um, learned a lot about making it in that type of environment. Uh, he went back into education and was invited to essentially start a program at Harvard, which brought together different schools. And it was kind of an entrepreneurial think tank where different parts of different schools would come together and work together, which was very unique. And it was in the spirit of entrepreneurship. And that was really really successful and it's still there today and something he's very proud of and I was excited to talk to him about that. And then we talk about his journey out west and how he landed at Boise State and then at the College of Western Idaho and we talk about kind of the state of education and his thoughts on that and so we just had a great conversation. Gordon, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me about all this. I really valued your time and your experience and I'm excited to share this. So why don't we stop listening to me and let's uh, let's get out of the show. All right. All right. Well, I'm joined today with Gordon Jones, who is the president of the College of Western Idaho. Hi, Gordon. How are you, Matt? Great I'm to good. be here today. Thanks for coming in, Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm excited to have this conversation today. I think we have uh, we have some some interesting and fun things in common, and uh, you have a, a wealth of knowledge to share. So um, I'm just gonna let's just get into it. So let's start with something nice and easy. Like, where are you from, and how did you find yourself in in our beautiful state here? Sure. So uh, I moved to, Bo- to Idaho in 2015, but where am I from? It uh, I actually grew up outside New York City in a commuting town in actually Connecticut, if you know the Northeast, it juts into New York close enough that a lot of folks, I had a parent, uh, my father worked in New York City and kind of commuted like a lot of people. I lived in Stamford, Connecticut when I was uh, in, what, uh, third to fifth grade, because my dad, like I said earlier, worked for the Chicago Tribune, they had an office in Manhattan, and yeah, he trained into the, he trained in, yeah, I know. uh, We can compare uh, maybe off the podcast places, (laughs) but uh you know, uh, I'm in my mid fifties now, so we're way back in the seventies growing up, uh, you know, enjoyable childhood, but, um, after college stayed on the East coast for college. Um, where'd you go? Uh, I went to Brown university okay. in Providence, Rhode Island. Nice. A lot of classmates, uh, on the East coast, as you may know, uh, kind of look towards Europe. It's as close a flight to, to London as it is to the uh, West coast. True. But, I ended up being more interested in the western part of the U.S., so I I moved uh, to rural Arizona. I took a job actually teaching high school on a thirty thousand acre cattle ranch slash small high school. Oh my god! And um, 
and spent two and a half years there. Okay. Um, really grew my love for the Intermountain West. So in some ways, there was a seed planted that arrived back here in Idaho. Yep. Did graduate school at Stanford in business in the mid-90s. And then I moved back to Boston, was there for the better part of 20 years. Okay. And eventually ended up here in Idaho, as I said, in 2015. Been here now since then. What a great path. Uh, gosh, I uh, love Boston. We're actually going to go back this summer and catch a game at Fenway. And it's a great <laughs> city. I took my family there a few years ago, and they just fell in love with it, too. What a, It's a great, one of America's best cities, I think. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you do today? I kind of said it, but like, tell me what your title is and what you do and what your responsibilities are. And then we're going to go back and we'll kind of retrace your path to the present. So. Sure. Yeah. So I'm the president of the College of Western Idaho, and not, I'm not going to assume all view, all listeners are uh, familiar with CWI. So that's what we call ourselves when we're shorthanding it. 30,000 students. Okay. And we're only 13 years old. And that should immediately, for anybody who's kind of... Uh, I don't care if you're a small business owner or if you're in education, um, that's a rocket ship growth. And it's a history that um, any of us in the public or private sector would love to have. CWI is a very affordable, it's it's a two-year college, so it's, it's designed to be available for really anybody. We're more interested in the number of students we include rather than some places uh, are more sort of promoting how many, how few students they let in. And CWI is there for this Treasure Valley. Um, 98% of our students are from Idaho. 88% are from the Metro Boise area, the Va- Treasure Valley, for those listening. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do a lot of career technical education, but we also do a lot of education that helps people become juniors in college if they sure. transfer on. And we work with folks, uh, adult learners to 18-year-olds. It really runs the gamut. And Great. so it's what we call a comprehensive community college. Do you have a few programs that are prominent, you know, that like what are your most popular uh, degrees that, that you're handing out? Yeah, I mean, for the way I'd describe us that maybe could help someone orient themselves, there's f- five areas we, we work in or deliver education in. One of them is this area of helping people become juniors. Okay. We call that academic transfer. Sort of a, if you're in the private sector, you might call it a business line. Sure. Um, the second thing we do is uh, related to that. It's called dual credit, and um, different states have different names for it. But we're actually the largest provider of dual credit in the state of Idaho, where individuals who are in high school, they're high school teachers teaching a class that's to the college's curriculum and uh, syllabus, and yet it's taught in the high school at a very affordable rate. And in the state of Idaho, it's actually funded by the state of Idaho for students that apply for it. So you get your college credit while you're in high school. Uh, We also do what's called career technical education. And that's more things like HVAC, plumbing, electrical. We're a police training facility. We do firefighting, nursing, CNA, dental assist. You go down the list, uh, agricultural related fields and horticulture. The fourth area is adult education. We do a lot of work with individuals looking to get retrained, maybe coming not necessarily for a degree, but some sort of reapplication. We have uh, 982 refugees who are doing English as a second language. We have individuals with skill sets that they're looking to um, further develop, become a CNA, right, right, um, a certified nurse assistant. So a number of programs in adult education. The fifth area is more corporate 
or contracted education. So one of the biggest ones, if you live in the Metro Boise area, is we're a key partner to Micron for mm-hmm. their expansion of this uh, this manufacturing facility, and we're doing light robotics preparation for people right. to f- to fuel and f- uh, really work that factory. So those are the five areas that make up the thirty thousand. Great, and you've been there since January of two thousand twenty-two. So okay. about fourteen months on the job. How's it going? It's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope anybody, uh, you know, uh, we all want to be in jobs that uh, align to our skill sets, that align to our passions. And uh, sometimes it takes us years to find that or different chapters of life reveal different opportunities. And from my standpoint, I love what I do. I know exactly why I'm at CWI and I've worked in a wide range of higher ed institutions and um, I'm a big believer in uh, higher ed, specifically community colleges, and how they can really change lives at an affordable rate. Awesome. All right, so I'm going to take us all the way back. So you said that your first job out of college was you taught math, right, to yep. high schoolers. It's funny, that was the path that I went to school for. I was a secondary ed and math major. And when I uh, did my student teaching, I was about three weeks in, and I realized this was not the path that I wanted to take. I did not enjoy my time <laughs> student teaching. And I uh, had to refocus and reframe and figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, so you went and you taught for a couple years. Talk to me about what, um, what's, why did you stop? And then what triggered your you know, interest in going uh, and getting your, did, did you get an MBA? Is that yep. right? Out of Stanford? Yep. So yeah, what was that transition like? What was going on in your head? You know, and uh, what did you want to do, you know, once you completed your your MBA? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different twists in there. I think the answer starts with the fact that um, we're all exposed to different things in our childhood. I grew up in a home that was very focused on both uh, business and um, and education. So I had a, uh, and particularly my father, although my mother was right there alongside him, uh, had a private sector career in business, but actually retired on the earlier side and uh, was always involved in our town's uh, public education board, became a state legislator, um, and was always very uh, promoting of education. So uh, in some ways, I was exploring coming out of college and through college, both of those interests. I had done internships in accounting at large companies. And long story short, though, is I wanted to try uh, education. And, and uh, not then, but now, looking back, I think I always had a passion for people. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't have called it that then. Right. Um, math was uh, a real interest of mine, and so I taught algebra and geometry. Um, really got exposed to uh, this big, great country we have, and I grew up in the Northeast, um, probably Metro Chicago. Similar, there's a lot of cultural, a little more intense culture, and I think I found um, a very different approach. A lot of first-in-family people considering college. I also You wear a lot of hats in these rural schools, so sure. I also did college counseling for... 30 students per year, Um, but loved that experience. But I was also uh, single at the time um, and in a rural environment. And and so one part of me was, um, what point do you you, uh, sort of, especially early in your career, maybe there's quicker cycle times on changing jobs, but more broadly, why not uh, teaching long-term? I think I looked at some of the veterans and mentors that I had and a tremendous amount of respect for what they do. 
my fear was, did I have the fuel in the tank to go 30 plus years? Right. And I think from my standpoint, the answer was I could easily do this a decade, maybe, maybe 15 years. But, and again, pre-internet days, um, I, I was smart enough to recognize that sounds like a hard time in life to make a pivot, you yeah. know, from at 40, what I would have been maybe 40. Um, I, th- I think days are a little different today, but long story short is, um, I saw the writing on the wall that I loved education. I'm not sure where I was and, uh, being in the trenches was going to be uh, long-term where I spent my time. So I did grad school and decided, Hey, let's start in the private sector. And so post MBA, um, went back to a private sector role with, uh, and moved back to Boston and started that chapter of my journey. Okay. Uh, so you went back to Boston and you started working for, did, do I remember Gillette? Gillette? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Gillette. So what did you do for Gillette? How long were you with them? Yeah. So, um, I worked for Gillette, uh, in a couple different sort of official designated capacities for about a decade. Now uh, it, w- it was a little messy and I would, I would sort of preview any listeners that um, although I'm in my mid fifties, I think my career arc has been very, is probably more reflective of what our 20 somethings are going to be experiencing. Mm-hmm. A lot of chapters, they may feel disconnected, but there's actually a thread through them. So any listeners, I think I'm sort of previewing, there is a thread here, but sure. it may sound more random. Uh, five years full time in in the product management space, um, and really learning kind of how to look at a business um, overall. In this case, the way Gillette works is you were assigned a certain number of brands. While you did marketing, you really were managing and sort of responsible for tracking that P and L and understanding how sales, marketing, manufacturing. We we worked right at the factory in South Boston. And, wow. And you'd sort of, if your product was made there, you knew exactly where it was coming from. In some cases, Gillette's a very diversified company. So um, opened my eyes, a lot of great people, friends today. Um, I, I spent the second five years bouncing. I had a dot-com bubble 2000, got excited. Yeah, I got excited and I went to an education technology company right in Boston. Perfect. Education's a big sector there. Um, company was bought within a month of me arriving. I think they had $5 million in revenue and they were purchased for $180 million. <laughs> so it, these are heady times and, yeah. uh, some listeners may be chuckling, but, um, you know, that was not a, uh, a company that I had founded. And so it quickly became not as interesting to be there. So I went back to Gillette, great relationships, great tip for people, you know, make sure you're uh, leaving on good terms because you never know when you may be cycling back. Sure. Um, and got into a different business unit where I really thrived and enjoyed that chapter. That was their oral care business, so the Oral B brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2005, Gillette was purchased by Procter and Gamble. It was a very different decision. A lot of people faced a choice to either move to Cincinnati, where they were headquartered. A few people could stay. Long story short, is um, I've always had a more uh, small organization or entrepreneurial bug as opposed to flight to even larger organizations. P&G is much larger. So around 2006, seven is when I 2007, I left um, to pursue a more entrepreneurial endeavor. But 10 years uh, in total, some of that was full-time, some of that was in more consulting roles, but it was a, it was a great decade. Yeah, what did you enjoy most about your time uh, with, with a large company like Gillette? What, 
you know, what, what gave you juice? And then on, on the flip side of that, what were some things that you were like, gosh, I wish this was different or I wish this could be different or, or I wish they would change this. I know that, you know, big companies are a unique space to work in, you know, sometimes maybe things work slower or, you know, you can't, it's not as quick to pivot on things. There are, you know, there's communication issues or whatever, but what was your time? Like, what did you enjoy and what, what did you wish could have changed? Gosh, you know, I loved, um, I loved the, uh, organized discipline, some of the strategy development, I think the learning about what brand means mm-hmm. and whether that be personal and, or, uh, at, you know, what does a brand relationship look like? Um, and then just appreciating, um, everything that goes into making a large multinational organization work and all that slow process has purpose sure. on the flip side. Um, that's that, organized process was the very thing probably that became a, a limiter for me. And in this case, I don't blame big or, you know, big organizations are not people, right? I mean, right. it's, they, they exist, uh, they've organized for a reason. And so I, I more put this on myself. I would just say that I, I've always been more eager to sort of custom create, be the advanced lead, design future strategy. And there are roles in large companies where that happens, but um, it, more often than not, the dissatisfaction had to do with the methodical process. Is there an ability to truly see individual contributions and uniquely reward those? And that's that's that's. Um, that's common, I think, across many large employers, right? And you'll see people, and they're either high flyers or they're outliers. And yeah. you, you know, I, I'm not here to self-categorize, but at the end of the day, it it just, um, I think, I was looking for a little more runway, a little more opportunity to kind of custom create solutions for yeah. organizations and and author a little more, as opposed to. Um, um, you know, the pace and some of this more slow motion, it's sort of a slow motion uh, machine for my taste, sure. but with purpose. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I mean, my business here, I run a small insurance agency. I have two employees, like everything is on my shoulders, um, 1099 through my parent company, and I can make changes and pivot at a moment's notice on where, where I stand, but I'm also connected to a larger company and, and I communicate with them and I see how things work. And sometimes seeing at the, and I don't necessarily understand how decisions are made. I've tried, I try very hard to sometimes learn how decisions are made. I've tried to be involved in those conversations and be part of leadership that, that can drive positive change. And it's exhausting. It's, it's tough and it's slow. And, um, and, and I know that I do not see things the way they do because I have an op- the opportunity to sit in their chair. And I, I trust and I believe that the decisions that are being made by, by the people in those seats are for everybody's best interest. Um, but that information doesn't always translate. Um, and I don't always understand as much as I try. So I've, I've, I understand what you're saying and I appreciate. Um, so when, what did you do next? So I, um, I had been connected to a family office, uh, an individual who, uh, it, it was a three-year chapter, 2007 to 2010 for me, was about pursuing more entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, and the shortest version I would tell that still has meat on the bones for listeners is 
in addition to that education technology startup, there was a second step out from Gillette where I actually, I had shared a factory, uh, some of the oral care bit products I oversaw, shared a factory with, uh, there was a third party manufacturer. And so I got to know some entrepreneurs who were producing a product that was launched uh, and within three years had grown to $100 million in sales. It was a rocket ship. And um, I got to know a CEO who went in to help those two founders lead. And I had stepped out for about a year to help them. And it was right at the point where this rocket ship was growing. It was in the pest control business, but it was a technology company. It had been founded on technology out of MIT. And this, this company was a shooting star. And at the same time, Many folks, we realize fast growth can be cancerous. Yeah. And, and these are these are also mark this when we talk about College of Western Idaho. These things are we all pick up our journey, little eggs in our basket. Mm-hmm. But I watched that organization continue to grow. And I came in as the right-hand person of the CEO, as the senior vice president, running all of sales, marketing, a bunch of other departments I probably had no experience in business leading, but smaller enterprise, but high growth. And the systems just couldn't keep up with, right. you know, it, it's complex, right? You yeah. have products being returned and fixed and, you know, but, you know, more and uh, how do you handle these things? And um, long story short, the company got into some problems and over the course of a year uh, sort of saw the high, saw the challenges and ultimately the CEO took the lead. I came alongside him and we walked the company through a sale process. Oh, wow. Um, mildly distressed but not a complete distressed sale at the time and put it in the hands of a more private equity backed purchaser and um, at that point i stepped out there's more to that story but i'll skip because what i did then was from 2007 to 2010 was connected to a family office in dallas who was doing a version 2.0 of that pest control product and hired me to lead that product. And we got that to a licensing relationship with um, ServiceMaster, the the parent company to Terminex Mm -hmm. and sort of became the mosquito solution for Terminex for a period of years when I was there. Um, At that point, it was sort of an interlude part of my career because in 2010, the company was viable. It was not going to be the same rocket ship that the $100 million organization was. And at midlife, sort of 40 for me, was a decision. And, um, hey, I want to get back into higher ed more full time. Now, for four years, from 2006 to 2010, while I was doing the end of Gillette, this three-year journey, I ended up starting teaching at some of the uni- at a university, guest lecturing at other universities in Boston. I started to help uh, Harvard evaluate candidates for their business school, Great. doing things on the margin. And that was, in a lot of ways, you look back, those were planting seeds. A lot of people think about their transitions in their careers. So that was, um, I look back and realize it was probably more by design than I realized even. Yeah. And at that point in 2010, I made a flip over to higher ed, which for many of my friends from Gillette, you know, not everybody does that that way. Right. But for me, it was when you think about my combined background and some of my passions was, um, wouldn't necessarily call it logical, but it was understandable. Mm-hmm. And that like was a, a move fit. I made. Yeah. So is this where you landed at, at Harvard? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So what was your role there? You did some pretty exciting work. Yeah. So the, the primary role that 
my time at Harvard was, was, um, was hired to be the, what they called the inaugural director of the Harvard innovation lab. And at the surface, it looks and sounds and, and sort of promotes itself as a place where entrepreneurs are building ventures. And it's, uh, you know, uh, if you think of Stanford and Harvard and those two schools tend to mostly, if I'm honest, think of those each other only, there's really not, they don't view sort of deep competition necessarily from others. But Stanford is kind of known as a place where um, a lot of their students and their intellectual talent, um, I'm thinking of Melissa Mayer who graduated, who started Yahoo or Sergey Brin and others. And you go down the list, the, the common, I don't think it's a joke, but I don't think it's meant to be serious history. But if you think of Harvard's great founders, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, um, what they have in different is that the Stanford ones graduated, the Harvard right. ones kind of dropped out That's and there were some structural reasons why. Um, and Harvard wanted to, I think, introduce applied learning and Harvard was more of a liberal arts organ university. Stanford, I think has a little more of a center of gravity around engineering and engineering is more applied. And so the innovation lab was really at an academic language was more of an applied learning place. Students could put their ideas into practice. Yeah. It looks like, and still to this day is more about ventures being started, students running with their ideas. Um, and so it carries a lot of interesting dimensions, but that was, a, uh, I had the chance to, from the ground up lead. Now Harvard had conviction. I want to be clear. I didn't originate the idea. Um, but, but it was nice to have that, um, Harvard's interest in that because it very quickly became a pretty pretty big deal. We had a lot of students and still is to this day a, a pretty special place. Yeah, what a great, great opportunity. So the idea was handed to you and you got to build it, be a part of building that from the ground up. How did you how did you attack that? Like what were your goals and missions for I mean you said applied learning, but like how do you how do you put that into play? What kind of you know, core structure did you build out? You know, what were you helping the students learn? How are you helping them, you know, uh, test their products and, and, and doing, what did the program look like? You know, and yeah, I, yeah. I think my role, I think I sort of, it's akin to being sort of a general manager of a, of a, I don't know if it's a startup because it was within a large organization. I mean, I had, it was, the challenge was not, uh, the, the building was going to be built regardless of whether I was there. It was an adaptive reuse of the old WGBH television building where Julia Childs used to cook and Arthur the Aardvark, uh, you know, yeah. closed captioning. It was a very historic <laughs> building. Har Harvard had already committed to that. They had committed to a framework. The real question was, would students come? Yeah. Would people even, in fact, it was at the edge of the university campus across a river. Harvard's 13 schools make up Harvard. They're all very, uh, in, uh, it's a very loose confederation. Um, the deans of the schools at Harvard are very uh, much the leaders of their schools. So the college for undergrad and a lot of grad schools. So long story short, um, would they come? And, and would the experience be worth coming back, right? Mm -hmm. And that's consistent with any private sector business, right? right. You, how do you get trial? And then how do you get repeat and right. loyal customers, right? And so, so there's almost a sales component in the beginning to try and get people in, right? hundred yeah. percent. And I think, um, you know, the way I, the way it works for universities and it, it and I, I'll claim it was a successful formula because, 
um, I can share with you what happened sort of at the end of my time and it's still there and running very successfully. But, um, you know, I turned to the, I, I, I turned to early adopters, right? There were uh, individuals at the same time, Harvard, uh, the 13 schools. The reason I mentioned that for listeners is, um, there's sort of 13 parts of the organization and they really don't talk to each other. There's no incentive to, they, they do what they do. The dental school, the medical school, the law school, why, why would they spend a lot of time with each other? Yeah, it's very compartmentalized. And so, um, there's a lot of work to, first of all, identify the inclined, the coalition of the willing, bring them in and introduce, from my standpoint, the chance to share in the authorship of this really great story. Now, that population's highly motivated. There's a lot of very accomplished uh, young individuals who were excited by that invitation to come author something. So we had, uh, you know, groups that kind of said, hey, I'll take the lead on promoting this, um, so there was promotion going on. Simultaneously, you got to have programming. You got to have something for people to come to. Right. And so I went out and met with a lot of faculty and said, "Hey, come teach your courses, um, cross-disciplinary courses in our very cool space." There were some very cool dimensions to it. The caveat was any class you taught, you had to have seats open for students from other schools, which was countercultural. Yeah, that's amazing. So you offer a tremendously exciting place for some of some faculty, not all. Yeah. But you still throw in a twist that's going to ensure you get cross-disciplinary interaction because what you're looking for is teams and mentors. You know, you want you want cross skill sets, right? Yeah. That's a positive. Yeah, it's like getting the football team and the basketball team and the baseball team to train together, right? Yeah, and you say to yourself at first place, well, why? What does that matter? And right. all of a sudden, you start to see magic happen, right. unstructured spontaneity. And so we'd start with, first of all, what classes could we teach? We quickly built up uh, one to two dozen courses being taught from six or seven of the 13 schools Maybe. that had seats for everybody. Yeah. Then you look towards uh, alumni and others say, hey, would you ever hold office hours? Become content experts, mm -hmm. situational. But the catch is any student will sign up and you're willing to meet with them for half an hour. And I promise you half of them may not be that interesting to you. But you find really talented individuals. The second thing we did was also set up skill-based workshops. What Not inviting alumni to come talk about their greatest experience they ever did but hey you're from apple what are the five things everybody needs to know about advertising and product design yeah and we would tell these these speakers hey teach a skill but i'm not here to guarantee you an audience but i promise you this the people that show up are going to want to be there yeah almost and, like a town hall yeah kind of a town hall we do yeah. it at night but yeah. you know again free food um, a lot of great experience. And um, so we, the, what I'm getting at is we had a formula. We started with classes. We had right out of the B8 experts. We had skill sessions. We then would set up some trips. And again, not every organization could do this, but at Harvard, we would have a faculty member who would lead students to Silicon Valley in New York City and uh, on their spring breaks or in January term. And students got to meet each other there. What are we doing? We're creating architecting experience, architecting a resource-rich environment, kind of like a farmer's market. We weren't there to tell students, put a, hop on our escalator and we'll make you an entrepreneur. But we're going to set a resource, a nutrient-rich kind of, and we'll help Sherp, you know, guide you. Hey, the fresh fruits are over there, fresh vegetables. This expert's there. This expert's yeah. there. But it's up to that individual to sort of walk the journey because that's what you need to do if you're going to be entrepreneurial to begin with or applied learning. And the tip of the spear was for students who really started to have traction. They'd formed teams. We actually offered them an incubator experience. And we would find a mentor who was specific to their industry. And um, by the time I left, we had had over 200 ventures incubated and uh, 
I, I want to say it was over $250 million in venture capital invested wow. um, after four full years with a, a dark, quiet period launch. Wow. So I left in 2015. But I, I think it's an interesting story. I hope your listeners do because there's a lot to it that we can um, – that is there and could be unpackaged. Yeah, that's incredible. What an exciting time to be a part of something really incredible, right? Yeah. Is there anything that came out of that that's, um, like, tell me something that came out of that that we may know of today. Do you have, are there any products or things that came out there like, yeah, this was born out of, out of this incubator or, you know, we helped this company, you know, launch and they're they're doing well today. There's a couple, um, and some of the names have changed. And so, um, but I've I've got a few from the early days. One was, um, it's currently called Mark 43. I had a student who was a, a undergraduate student who took a course from a faculty member and he had to do a project and it was related to social media. And again, 2010, obviously social media existed, but you know, infancy, it's, 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 yeah, it's a younger days. Um, but he did his internship with the state police in Massachusetts and the state police happened to have taken over, um, gang and drug interdiction in one city because it was on a major corridor between Montreal and New York Mm -hmm. and the over the local police. I can't remember exactly how, whether they asked or were forced, but either way he interned with the state police to look at, um, how social media could be used to, um, inform how law enforcement worked on gang interdiction. And at the time, quite novel, he was he landed on mapping gang communication, and because many of the police that couldn't tell who the leader was, sure. let's say, yeah. and by mapping that, they were able to figure out who it was. And what you learn is these are high trust organizations, gangs, and I'm no expert in them, but um, when they were able to walk into a communal gang meeting, walk right in and grab the leader without saying a word, pull them out. And you'd start to listen to the communications. What you'd see is lack of trust. People would wonder who snitched. Right. And all of a sudden there was implosion. And actually the answer was none of them had snitched, but they had monitored. Yeah. And so it was very interesting that learning. What he led to though was he developed um, software that's used by law enforcement today globally Amazing. to create efficiency in reporting. There's a lot of interagency work in cities like LA. You may have 16 different agencies working on gang interdiction. Right. And how that communication, paperwork, how do you get people more out participating in the community, being visible rather than in an office? And the number of hours that many of our public safety officers spend in paperwork historically has been quite large. So that that's one organization. It's sort of comparable to a company called Palantir, which is what better known as a bigger company. Um, uh, another company was doing uh, Vaxis, it's called. Looking at um, using silk, uh, proteins and silk from silkworms that can help store live vaccines so they don't have to be refrigerated when they go around the world. Interesting. And if you know anything about vaccines, a lot of them have to be cold cold chain storage, refrigerated. And I think the statistic back when I was uh, with that group, I mean, Michael Schrader runs it. Um, half of all vaccines get shipped around to third world countries end up having to be thrown out because the cold storage was broken at some point. Right. Somebody didn't refrigerate the truck, in other words. And so if they were able to sort of put these into, think of the old breath strips. Yeah. If you could suspend a live virus in this silk protein that sits on the strip, you could ship it at any temperature and then sort of reactivate it right. with hydration 
or with some saline and and inject, and you are able to much have much more impact. So those are just two. That's amazing. There are hundreds. Yeah. Um, but I tried to give a little bit of healthcare, a little bit of a tech tech example. Yeah. Awesome. So you exit this program. Was it hard to leave? Did you know it was time? Like, yeah, I, you know, I think everybody has moments. And one of the things you didn't maybe ask, and you wouldn't necessarily know, but while I was at Harvard, um, I actually fell in love with a different problem in higher ed. And the beautiful thing about being at a place like Harvard is you host a lot of visitors. A lot of people want to come visit you. Sure. And in the course of my time there at the innovation lab, I, I believe I had charted over 200 universities, um, either presidents themselves or senior leaders who came to look and understand this particular thing. And I had the chance to sort of reverse interview, uh, take advantage of the moment. And I'd ask a lot of them, well, I'd ask a lot of them, Hey, why, why are you interested in the innovation lab? Why'd you even come here? And one of the things I figured out was that, Many institutes, there's a lot of homogeny in higher education. We're a highly fragmented industry. For those that don't know, there's about 4,000 higher ed institutions in the United States of America. That should blow your mind. And to this day, I still hear of institutions I've never heard of, yeah. you know, because they're small, they're yeah. regional, they're local, and um, and they're not in the areas where you maybe grew up. And so uh, this is a very fragmented line of work. Uh, hyper local. Think of it akin to hardware stores or dentist offices. Yeah. Nobody controls the market. Right. And so, what I learned was a lot of people look and just to, to sort of replicate behavior. And I don't know if that's a short circuit version of market research or whether it's just uh, not their best attempt or whether it's very deliberate. But I always found that about ninety-five percent of the answers I heard were pretty underwhelming to me. Yeah. Five percent. They had a real thesis. They really knew why. But for many of them, it was well. Somebody told me we should start one, or this would really help our recruitment, or I don't really know. But you know, an alum told me I should be here. <laughs> and um, and I, the long story short is, I got really interested in what the private sector would call the value proposition of public higher education, because education higher ed has segments. And I was less interested in what the top 50 schools, I'm, I'm convinced, and to this day, I'm convinced the disruption and change that I think is facing higher ed, the last place it's going to impact is a place like Harvard. There is a $40 billion endowment. They're, they're, they're inoculated, much like a large Fortune 500 company who's in a number one or number two position. They're going to be able to see the trends coming and figure out a way, I mean, this is my view, not necessarily, I don't speak for Harvard by any stretch, but I would say my view of Harvard is they're going to always be able to wait and see what the winning approach is, and they'll buy their way in. Well, and that's, that's a legitimate, yeah, that's a legitimate yeah. strategy, right, yeah. for those folks. But when you're leaner and smaller, trying to be a fast follower to Harvard or trying to be in 200 years Harvard not a great strategy right. and and trying to replicate harvard is a flaw right. i would argue for especially when you get into public higher ed so the answer is it was hard to leave from the standpoint of wonderful people great mission um very comfortable place to work right um however i've always been someone who's kind of pursued passions over um you know uh, uh you know, there's a lot of uh, success already built into a Harvard, right? Yeah. And and being attached to that organization is wonderful. But I, I've always 
There was a line I heard from another colleague one day who said, um, I want to be at places where my I'm going to make my grandchildren proud, not my grandparents. There you go. And I think I've always been someone who's sort of looking out the front windshield saying, how can I author and uh, and help organizations try to you know really adapt, be relevant, and grow? And in this case, I got interested in where could we introduce heterogeneity and innovative models of higher ed that could get address some of the trends I saw that I think the Harvards of the world were going to sort of watch and monitor, but weren't necessarily a, a, a problem. Okay. So, uh, that leads you, does that lead you out West then? Did you land at BSU? It does. Yeah. I landed yeah. at Boise state from there. I got a call from the former president, Bob Kestra mm-hmm. at my office in Harvard. And, and, and some read, some listeners will, uh, will know of Bob or even know Bob, but very charismatic individual, and he's got a very distinctive voice, but he said, I'll use my voice for his. But he just basically had said, hey, uh, let me introduce myself. Um, uh, I've started a new college out here at Boise State called the College of Innovation and Design. I don't have a founding leader for this, um, and I'd love to talk to you. Would you be willing to talk to me? And what that led to was an invitation to come out, meet, meet Bob, meet the campus, and uh, as I hopefully by now any listener would recognize, that was actually an exciting opportunity for me when you think of my background, wanting to sort of author and introduce and still do it within established organizations. It's not to kill a headline here, but at the end of the day, I consider myself an intrapreneur, not an entrepreneur and not a, a pure uh, leader of mature organizations. I like to kind of work at the margin of reasonably healthy organizations. Great but help them design the next path, the next playbook, and execute it. Uh, it's not a consultative posture at all. I like to get my 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 uh, cufflinks dirty, so to speak. Yeah. So you like to get you like to enter a space that's ready for some form of evolution or uh, innovation. And uh, what a great space to be in. I'm sure. I mean, I'm it's, I'm sure it's exciting. You know, I'm sure there's you know there's a little bit of risk involved. You know, you don't want to fail. You know, but you're bringing so much experience from what you've gathered in your you know prior career. So what was your, when you landed here and you were tasked to do, uh, you know, this new job, what, how did you tackle it and what did you, what did you onboard? Yeah. And I don't know if anybody, you know, it's, it's always interesting when you start into a job and you realize there is no playbook, right? Uh, there is no, how do you start a college from scratch? Like playbook. being a business owner. And, um, the fast, the first thing I did was before I even set foot here, I, um, I do a lot of my intelligence gathering by meeting with people as opposed to sort of diving into the internet. I have other people around me who do the opposite, but either way I went and started to really pressure to first of all, develop a thesis on what needed to be happening and um, pressure test that with as many people as possible. So come pre-prepared pre viewing. And obviously in the interviewing process, I was already doing that. So I had, I had already met with a number of different former presidents, deans, um, indicating kind of the both the role of the academic uh, role but also navigating you know how it was structured at Boise State and designing my strategy and my playbook and so um, first of all there was no playbook how I did it though was I decided partly because of how it was structured to do a two focused um, effort the first was um, I'm an academic college, and for those that don't know higher ed, that means you're you have the ability to sponsor academic programs. You're not having to turn to other 
colleagues on campus uh, to say, would you be willing to have a faculty member teach this? We were able to hire and sponsor our own academic majors, minors, certificates. But the way I designed it, because there is no um, discipline of innovation and design, uh, you think of College of Business or College of Liberal Arts or College of Health Sciences, Education, you go down the list. Those are often organized by those topics, mm-hmm. right? Your faculty will do something around education in the right. College of Education. College of Innovation and Design is not people writing books about innovation. We were actually doing innovation on higher ed. Wow. But we had two focus areas. One was working on looking at what was retarding or holding back the unit Boise state in particular, or what we believed maybe was holding it back or could be new opportunities. And some of the things we saw were many universities often become pretty ossified and maybe organizations do too. They kind of get fixed into, um, they don't work across disciplines. So the college of education might never work with the college of business only unless there were two highly motivated, spontaneously combusting faculty. And in fact, even then the processes may disincentivize that how you get tenure in a university doesn't incentivize individuals to work across disciplines. And yet the history of higher ed used to have that. And so one of the areas we went towards was let's try to work at cross-disciplinary major creation. So for example, one of the first things we sponsored was a major in game design. Interesting. And if you look at that from a class standpoint, of courses you'd take, you'd actually realize it's built on like three different academic areas, art, psychology, and computer science. And yet if you look how and our universities are organized, at least at Boise State, and I think probably most universities, two if not th- all three of those would reside in very different parts of a university. Absolutely. And they would never spontaneously meet. And so doing a gaming design major in a typical process, uh, I believe would take years, not months. And it would often involve a lot of friction on how much curriculum from each of those three, because our college was able to sort of grab that amalgamation and say, we're going to sponsor it. We had some structural ability to launch it quickly in eight, nine months and have those, have the curriculum designed in a more seamless way. And it, I think it became within three or four years one of the top 20 majors at Boise State. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. With hundreds of students, I think 350. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's just one example. But we worked there. The second space we worked in, though, was where's the ball headed in higher ed? Right. What's happening? What are the threats? What are the, you know, a little more of an external view of the world and saying, gosh, I'm looking at the rise of online delivery of education. Most higher ed historically has sort of been laggards viewing it as a subordinate, inferior option for learning. And I think COVID plus where the market's going, we're realizing it's actually a uh, equivalent but different delivery method, appropriate for some, uh, akin to being in a personal classroom, but not for others. We looked at um, how do we grow access and affordability? These were variables that had to be addressed. Lifelong learning, globalization. How do we introduce world-class content to at local state school prices so that individuals from Idaho who have a great work ethic could develop global confidence. So we partnered back with Harvard, offered a certificate of readiness from Harvard Business School for undergrads who had no business background, just to certify them. They'd take a test that they'd get a Harvard certificate at a public school price. And so these were examples where the ball's headed in higher ed that your college of business, education, liberal arts, there's a lot of the work of today they focus on. It's not clear to me that 
who's going to solve the problem of adult education as a university? These were cross-disciplinary sort of pro- one university solutions. And so we took a crack at those. We had some wins. We had some failures. Yeah. Uh, but it was very interesting. Very cool. So you were there for six years? Almost seven. Almost yeah. seven years. And then... Did CWI come calling to you or were you, was there something that was opening up that piqued your interest or how did you land over there? Well, CWI had a retiring president um, and he had been the second uh, president, but really um, the primary president in the history of the school. I mentioned earlier at the beginning is 13 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, I I love Idaho as many uh, individuals do. My wife and I have four kids. We love the, we love everything about this livability at scale, amenities of cities, but a quick access to outdoor activity, all that. And so we kind of made a decision career-wise, this is where we'd like to be uh, geography-wise. And so I really turned towards um, uh, what are opportunities I think could best use this skill set. And I think Boise State, I really enjoyed my time. I would have been happy to have stayed there. But um, the chance to go to a young 13-year-old, 30,000-person institution serve per year is really not an opportunity to pass up, I would argue, for my profile. Um, and there's a lot more maturation that's going to happen, but that scale, it's the largest number of certainly community college, and I think we would be neck and neck with Boise State, for the largest institution in the state. And so that relevance, I think, is important because whatever we're designing could instruct other folks. It's it's hard to do that when you're a 500 person or a, a small rural community college. Not I'm not referencing in-state, but there are small right. rural schools that really frankly haven't measured their students in the hundreds, not tens of thousands. Right. So that was pretty exciting. So what what would you say are some of the biggest challenges to such massive and quick growth for, and I mean, you, you referenced a company that you, when you were out in Boston that went to a hundred million in, in sales mm-hmm. in a short period of time. And now you're at a university that's at 30,000 people in 13 years, which is, which is incredible. And like growth is important in, in many of the things that we do, whether it's in, you know, academia or in business, we all want growth. It's let's grow, grow, grow. But like growing at a speed like that, can be dangerous and there can be things that pop up that people aren't ready for and everybody wants to scale. And what are the challenges that come with growth, uh, with significant growth like that? If you're not ready for it, how do you prepare for something like that? Yeah, I think, um, hundred percent agree with, I think where your question goes, which is, um, everybody loves the idea of growth, but you have to be careful because can you digest it and can you maintain the kind of quality and you know what you do and do it well can you do it well with that and i think cwi if i'm honest for the first decade that i understand of it because it predated my arrival but there was so much pent-up demand we were the largest metropolitan area without a two-year community college Mm -hmm. in the nation and so um, as told to me i mean students just kept showing up it just kept driving in it was almost like um and and maybe for those listening it's it's this idea of um I suspect it was a great time to be there, but it was probably nerve wracking. And so what we did was a lot of things that anybody would do is we tried to figure it out as best we could. We signed leases for classrooms all over the Valley. We, um, 
you know, we did whatever we could to get them in and we didn't necessarily, we lowered, you know, we didn't have an expert in anything. Everybody kind of jumped in all hands on deck. We had people designing online applications who might never have done it before. Yeah, very grassroots, yeah, right? Just sort of, you, you did what you could. Now, um, huge admiration and, and that's great. I think the next decade for us though, is going to be a decade where we have to ensure that the things that were good that happened are the result of being really good at your job mm -hmm. and and married with high demand. I think in the public sector, growth is important, but it's not immediately an assumed top priority. However, here in Idaho, and in specifically with CWI, I think it is a presumed goal of ours because we're fast-growing population. Mm -hmm. And we're a, public, we're a public entity, so we're here to serve. I'm not here to dominate world domination is not necessarily it but um high quality affordable education that leads to empowerment through employment 100 percent, we want to be number one at that because that's what we do and so in this valley we think of we really should be serving we have some metrics we look at and think that you know we ought to be serving a larger number and to do that though how do you grow at scale maintain your quality so simultaneously right now at cwi we're we're in the process of maturing creating more rigor to some of the processes some of the things you would never see yeah. and we're going back and trying to have a culture where we're honest about it we're celebrating the past nobody did anything wrong yeah. <laughs> but we're entering another chapter where we're going to have to really design process not Fortune 500 massive process, but process because process helps us get work done when we're not 15 people sitting around a table where we can just talk to each other. Mm -hmm. We don't, we're too big for that now. We're at 1500 employees. And so how do we, um, how do we navigate that? And so we have to design some of that process while we still pursue growth. And so we don't want to be slapping frosting on a crumbling cake, which is what organizations with high growth can feel like or sort of losing your your, your center of balance. But um, we are going to have a, a hardworking phase where we have to kind of do both. We have to go back and really figure out some processes and, and um, you know, technologies and things. But we can't do that and stop doing recruiting and serving students and giving them the kind of quality of education we want. Yeah. I have a friend of mine who has a great analogy and it works for a situation like this or building a business. He's like, it's like building a road, you know, that you're driving on, you know, or, you know, flying the plane that you're still building or something like that. You yeah. have to do all these things at the same time, you know, and it's hard and it's a lot of work, but there has to be, you know, uh, the right messaging has to be in place and everybody's got to be on board and communication's got to be really tight and, it's a lot, but um, if you do certain fundamentals properly, um, you can do it. You know, I'm curious. You know, um, what are you guys doing at CWI? You know, to help prepare students to you know to successfully enter the workforce. I think you have some challenges in this uh, in these classes that that are entering and that are exiting that I think are unique, you know, over the to, to maybe what you and I were used to or previous classes. You know, you're coming out of um, COVID, which will is still having lasting impacts on our youth. Um, I think with what the advent of social media, that I think that has had some direct impact on uh, you know the development of this generation. Um, this is one of the mo most anxious generations that we've had um, in history, and I'm curious on what kind of things you guys are doing to help you know get them ready you know to enter the real world 
I think CWI, when I think of it, this answers in context of all the higher ed institutions I think of. I've, I've been around ones like the ones I've worked at overall. I think the superpower for a CWI or one of the benefits for us is we're more tightly focused, I would argue, than your average college or university. We talk a lot about, very specifically, we do highly affordable, quality, employable education that's designed to empower and transform lives. I mean, public higher ed is about economic and social mobility, the idea that anybody can come at a reasonable, affordable price and find themselves, um, if they bring their effort and attitude, can find a, uh, a partners with them to a better life, which often starts, I always argue, it starts with a good job. Because yeah. if you're living paycheck to paycheck, I, I personally believe it's very hard to sort of build margin to go self-actualize, for lack of, lack of a better word, oh, or sort like of it. find your purpose. Yeah. So um, what we do is we're very comfortable with employment as the outcome and applied environments. And so a significant portion of our students do career technical education. I mean, I, I would, I've never uh, been as confident that a CWI graduate coming out of nursing, the police academy, the fire academy, HVAC, plumbing, electrical, we have um, a lot of time with many of our teachers are coming in from employed positions today. And so you're getting highly relevant how it works today, married with a certain percentage of our faculty who are looking at theory and bringing that into the classroom. But our percentage of applied and preparedness is something we're very comfortable with and we emphasize. I'm not here to say that we have some, you know, every single CWI student is a rock star, but we put them in a position where we're going to minimize the chance that what I've heard some employers say is that person may have that degree, but they're useless here. Right. Um, I don't believe that's the kind of person we have. We tend to have students who, um, I don't think I've ever felt like they've been born on second base. They're there to work hard, yeah. and we're trying to give them the skills and some of the learning and some of the knowledge that is going to help them jumpstart. So I generally, quite honestly, mostly what I hear is I really like CWI students. Um, and they come in, they don't ask for you know special favors, they're there to work. That being said, what are the things we do? We do partner a lot with employers. Um some very specific pathways, HVAC, plumbing, electrical, have apprenticeships. We have very specific ways. We currently work with employers. We get students out. Half their day is with Great. the employer. That more of an apprenticeship model. Um, and at the same time, um, we're always looking to grow and get better. We don't ever think we've arrived at, at CWI. Yeah, amazing. What do you think... What do you think the future of education looks like for a community college, you know, like CWI? Are you, um, what are the trends you're seeing? You know, um, how do you see, uh, what kind of things are you looking to implement to make things, you know, better for students to learn faster or quicker or to be more ready, you know, for entering the workforce? What kind of, what kind of trends are you seeing that, that are changing to make things, you know, better? Yeah, I could go on and on, so I'll let you decide when you cut me off. But I think, um, you know, um, what are the trends? There's a lot of trends going on in higher ed, like in a lot of industries. I think we're one of the last, um, I think maybe public government, higher ed, and maybe healthcare are the last three major sectors to grapple with globalization, speed of the way things are happening and moving, the rise of technology, substitutes and alternatives. I mean, just the pace is faster. And 
people have tuned in on uh, either unfortunately or fortunately, depending on who you are. And each is an equal response, I would argue. But um, higher ed, higher ed is being viewed as a very large, attractive area for suppliers, disruptors, um, alternative models. And so I think there's a lot of pressure on those institutions that have sort of anchored themselves and made themselves feel comfortable by saying, gosh, our industry's been around for 100 plus years. Um, look at the durability this of what is the we've way we've done. always yeah, done. Yeah, look at the durability. I mean, time tested. And the problem is, I, I think what we typically have, um, if, at least when I look at some of our demographics, some of the evolution, I'm seeing the rise more of substitutes and alternatives. It's not clear to me. Everybody wants to do residential-based education. I say the chapter we're in today, and it's hard for me to tell you where it's going long-term because it seems to have chapters. But today's chapter, I think the next decade, is going to be about you better deliver affordability. And I mean my, and my is the listeners, affordability mm-hmm. and employability. If you don't have those, everything else you do that's special, unique, amazing offerings, it, it's going to fall on a larger proportion of deaf ears than interested ears. And so I, I think that's different than how higher ed's thought because historically we've not been as expensive. And I guess what I'm getting at is we've also had our pricing kind of get out of whack, which comes back to why did I leave Harvard? The value price of the value proposition. You have to always double check is your price worth it? And I have individuals on campus who I have to, we all have different answers for that. There is a portion of people who say, you know, it, it's an infinity investment. It'll, it'll last a lifetime. Um, it's changing lives. And I agree with those people. The problem I have with it is that statistically, that's a very small group of people who are going to buy that alone. The idea that intellectual transformation is uh, is so is worth the six figure investment or more, um, and so um, I I think you have to look through the lenses when we talk about affordability of the people, the parents, and the students, and the average incomes. My quick back of the envelope is about half of Idahoans make less than $60,000. Some of our public institutions, and we're affordable compared to a lot of states, but quite honestly, it gets up to around $100,000 to do a residential-based full meal plan, 12 months of residency, and you can scholarship some of your tuition, but most people I'm aware of don't get scholarships for housing and food. Um, And so... We, we have to recognize what we think is affordable compared to other schools in other states. We may be missing at least half our market. I mean, go look at what a mortgage, if you make $60,000, how much of a mortgage can you take out? It's around 100, my quick back of the envelope was about $140,000, $150,000. So if I go spend 100 of that on an education for one of my kids, um, you know, and yes, you can get some scholarship money, but it's not going to knock it down as much as some folks might want you to think. Yeah. You're realizing that is your mortgage. And guess what? Statistically, half of all people in this country who go to higher ed don't graduate in six years. Wow. So one out of two people never get to experience that premium earnings that right. comes from being a graduate. And so I, I, I'm worried about how do we restore public confidence? It's going to come. I think community colleges are in the sweet spot because we're, we're highly affordable. CWI is $3,300 a year. 
wow. 15 programs that cost less than $10,000 that pay over 50. So this idea of return on investment, I hate to say it that way because there's so much more we can do. But back to my earlier point, if you don't convince people the return is there, many people are first in their family in Idaho to be going to college. They're making a family bet. We're stewards of a lot of family destination. And um, failure is not a great outcome for anybody. And so the community colleges, I think at the levels of affordability we are, even the folks who fail, we haven't catastrophically put you under if you have $1,000 in debt. Right. Um, You do have a bigger problem when you're staring at 20, 30, 40, 50. And, um, and so I think those are the trends. I think those are the, the, the areas we focus on is employability and affordability. We do a lot more too, but we do that because we're relentless about, we are a commuter model. We're lean. We're not going to offer flag football or, you know, or for that matter, NCAA football, uh, Greek life. You're gonna you're gonna have a lot of things that were focused on you in the classroom, getting ready to getting going, and um, taught by highly qualified people. And in this labor market, there's a lot of jobs out there. Yeah. Do you see a shift in? I don't know what the numbers look like, but are is there a rise in two year degrees versus four year degrees? Are those lines pretty steady? Do you see more people opting for two years instead of four years? Like. Because affordability I, and value are important, right? And you've spoken like it's expensive to go to college, you know, or a four-year school. And then if you're looking at private schools, it's a very different animal, you know. I predict you're going to see historically, in my experience, two-year schools have ex- have had a much greater emphasis on, hey, if you don't know what you're going to do after high school, go to community college, or you're looking for very specific job training. I think you're going to see the appeal broaden for community colleges to people saying it's actually a smart choice, smart value. And you're going to see, I think, uh, the, the trade winds are favorable. And I, and I think community colleges have to respond. And I think at CWI, we're because we're young, we haven't really sort of have a history to rewrite, but we're very focused on being strategic. We want to be the primary partner. We do believe strategically because we're hyper-focused on one metro area. I don't, right. I'm not concerned about 12 other states in the country. I'm focused about the Treasure Valley. So we turn to employers and we say we want to. We're not saying we're amazing, but we want to and strive to be a preferred partner because we have large numbers of students and we're right here. We're your school and we're adaptive. We're comfortable with, you know, a class that's informed by your company yeah. as opposed to, um, I find more research based institutions are more interested in studying. And supplying graduates to, to employers, studying employers and supplying graduates um, less centered around, hey, you come be an integral part of this class that we're designing. Yeah, what a great bridge between, you know, education and the job market when you're instituting, you know, business partners in the community who are helping with that education, either, you know, um, they are um, going out and working in that business or they are uh, working in that plumbing company or that HVAC company. And then those people, if they make good connections, I mean, what a great bridge to just seamlessly, you know, work for that company. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean, that sounds, yeah, there's a great, there's a great wall street journal article in the last week. And I know we're here in March of 23, but, um, talked about the rise of apprenticeships with community colleges and employers. So it focused on a suburban Chicago company. I'm sure you know, well, Aon insurance. Sure. 
And um, I think they have now uh, an apprenticeship program started, I think it was six, seven years ago. It had 40 applicants. Now they get over 1,100, and they can only accept 70. I mean, they're looking at about a 7% acceptance rate. It almost looks like an exclusive school at that point. But you get a community college degree, plus you've worked on the job, getting paid, I think they mentioned, $40,000 a year. And you're slide right into employment. And that's great when you're Aon. I think when you're smaller business, I believe the pathway to those kinds of ideas come with the associations you're a part of and saying, let's bind up together. So even in insurance, I mean, I'm looking at, do you start insurance brokerage certificates or sales or what are the other areas that can supply and do you do it specifically in partnership and if you do it do it with an association is maybe bundling up because if you only need one or two people a year it gets hard to for a thirty thousand person school or for that matter even a small school to say we'll do it all for everybody right, right? that's yeah. nobody can really run that way yeah well gordon i'm out all questions <laughs> but Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your experience. You've got such a wealth of experience in all these different places, and you're doing incredible work currently on the ground with CWI. It sounds like you're in a place that you will thrive, and they will thrive because of you, um, because of what you've collected in your past and your skill set. And um, I love the way that you seek places that continue to challenge you and that you can continue to expand instead of, you know, just kind of coasting. I really, you do have a real entrepreneurial spirit and you're helping hundreds, if not thousands of people, you know, in the process. So it's been a pleasure sitting here. I, I, I could go for another hour talking to you, but I, I don't have the time today, so maybe we'll have to revisit, but I really appreciate you coming in. It's been a pleasure meeting you and talking with you, and I just uh, thank you for sharing. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciated it. All right. All right, there you go. Thank you again, Gordon, for coming on. That was outstanding. I really appreciate your time, and I know you're busy, and so for you to come in and just talk shop with me was a real treat, so thank you. My name's Matt. This is None of My Business. You can find me all over the place. My blog is at... Uh, www.deetsagency.com on, on I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Deets Agency and I really appreciate you spending your time listening to the show don't forget to subscribe and uh, if this is valuable to you do me a favor and uh, give me a review I really appreciate it all right thank you so much for listening keep up the good work <laughs> <laughs>